Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, Allison Mitchell discusses the history of black electoral politics in the state. They can really agitate these small portion of Dixocrats who are trying to hold on and keep Florida, you know, as a part of like kind of like that older South. And they use some down South tactics. We'll talk about our state tree, the sable palm. It generated decades of controversy and competing views on its place in the symbology of the state. And the history of migrant farm workers in Apopka. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Allison Mitchell is giving the 10th annual Gerald H. Schaffner Lecture on Friday, October 21st at 3 p.m. during the Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium at the University of Central Florida. Mitchell is a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Virginia and a dissertation fellow at Emory University's James Weldon Johnson Institute. Her presentation is called From Protest to Politics, Reconsidering the Impact of the Congress of Racial Equality's Voter Registration Campaigns in Florida. The Congress of Racial Equality, known as CORE, was founded in Chicago in 1942. They were very grounded in direct action, but heavily and grounded in nonviolence. So a lot of what we see later, ideas of nonviolent direct action, um, CORE was pivotal in that. And most people know them in the popular narrative as being a part of the Freedom Rides. When we think of CORE, we usually think of the Freedom Rides, the sit-ins, and et cetera. There is a long history of disenfranchising Black voters in Florida. The 15th Amendment didn't actually guarantee African Americans the right to vote, it just said that voting rights couldn't be denied because of race. Florida's leaders came up with all sorts of barriers to voting that didn't technically violate the 15th Amendment, but still effectively kept black people from voting. These included poll taxes, literacy tests, and long residency requirements. There was just levels of violence as well, right? Intimidation, ways of and ensuring that people would be fearful if they chose to go. Um, But what I I hope to discuss more in my actual talk is some of these um, tactics were simple things. It was making sure, oh, suddenly, you know, they couldn't find someone to run the office. It was the location of the office being in what you see in Gadsden County, being in the newspaper, um, the owner of the newspaper, his place. So if he doesn't open it, he doesn't want to. And I think with Florida as well, as Florida used, honestly, their use of their image. A lot of it was like some traditional Southern um, intimidation, uh, you know, manipulation of politics. Uh, Later, you know, Florida is very big on gerrymandering, which I hope to get in at some point also during my talk. 
but being able to describe themselves as this place of freedom, um, in a sense. And uh, you'll see a lot of Black Floridians, even as the, their ability to vote becomes um, more accessible and statistically, they do increase in comparison to other states. They start to question the idea of representation as well. And why is it that we can't get a politician who, who looks like us or, or at least one that actually supports and understands race relations? To illustrate the lack of African-American representation in Florida politics, one need look no further than formerly enslaved Union soldier Josiah Walls, who was elected as the first black member of Congress from Florida in 1870. He would be the only one for 116 years. That lack of diversity can be seen as the result of voter suppression. Allison Mitchell. For me, when I think of voter suppression, what I hope to do is kind of even look a little beyond our more traditional understandings of what it means to suppress the vote. What happens after they cast the ballot? What questions um, are they asking that are, quite frankly, not being answered or, or being ignored? Uh, and so why do we get to the point now where we're just like, Florida's always been this crazy place, but all these things were pretty intentional. There's a reason since like 1994, I want to say, that our state legislature has been very conservative. Um, there's a lot of things that are put in place that I hope to push the idea of like what exactly voter suppression is. In addition to making it difficult for Black people to register and exercise their right to vote through restrictive rules, intimidation, and violence, Florida created a whites-only primary. The white primary is something that is very pivotal in Florida. I know a lot of times when we think about the white primary, you know, we look at that text, right? Smith v. Alt, right? We look at Texas, but immediately after that is overturned, Black Floridians immediately start working to increase their voting rights. And that's also where you see later Harry T. Moore um, and Harriet Moore and others in NAACP starting to take on um, the larger task of getting Black folks in Florida registered. Um, and unfortunately, they are assassinated. They work for teachers and et cetera, but pushing the envelope and being direct about the Groveland boys and et cetera, and tying all of these issues of racial violence, connecting them directly to politics, um, we see what happens. We see the use of, of, of violence when other tactics are no longer working. Many historians believe that Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore were killed because their Progressive Voters League registered more than 116,000 African-American voters in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Allison Mitchell's research focuses on CORE's efforts to equalize voting in Florida in the 1960s. Similar to um, SNCC uh, and other organizations, CORE was also part of the Voter Education Project. It started in 1962, and so CORE gets their first little spout of money, because a part of this also is like the financial aspects of organizing, right? It costs money to organize. Um, so they start off actually in Miami, where the original chapter in Florida came from. And so what I'll be talking about is um, not only that the work that they started off originally in Miami, when they took on a larger role of the Big Ben Project, um, which where they directly went to North Florida. Because at this point, we know Florida's apportioned in a way where a lot of these rural areas at the state level have a lot of power, but they don't actually have the population, <laughs> majority of the population. Urban spaces are growing. The Tampas, the Orlandos, the Miamis, of course, are growing. Um, and so now they see several communities of Black people in these spaces who aren't voting. And I mean, when I say no voting, I mean, this county is, I think at one point, limited zero, like zero Black voters, registered voters. Or you'll see one person on the roll and you realize that person no longer lives there. They left. 
Um, so essentially CORE goes in and they center themselves in Gadsden County. Um, and from there, it starts off with the voter education project and the Big Ben, but they continue well into about 1965. Um, at one point, you know, working their best to kind of gain funding but they're working with the communities. Many of the workers are people who directly come from the student movement at FAMU, FSU, et cetera. Um, Gainesville as well, some UF, former UF students. Uh, they're coming in and they're working with uh, community members who quite frankly are, are tired themselves. Um, and I think it's, it goes into that larger conversation of, of the civil rights era and looking at local communities. Like they're the ones calling the shots, but also a lot of these organizers are from these spaces, uh, particularly Patricia Stevens do. Like she was a from Gadsden. She had family in Gadsden. So you start looking at um, leaders arrive uh, from the space who know North Florida and they know for a fact what it means if they can really agitate these small portion of Dixocrats who are trying to hold on and keep Florida, you know, as a part of like kind of like that older South. Um, and they use some down South tactics to do so. While CORE's efforts in Florida did not yield all the results they had hoped for, their work did pave the way for current efforts to equalize voting opportunities. A lot of times when we look at like voting and we look at participation, we focus a lot on the statistic, um, but we also don't look at it necessarily from that, that state level, that local level. So what they're able to do is they take several places, um, Gats and you know, Leon, though, you know, Tallahassee is there. They very much had voter suppression as well. Leon was very much a part of it. These other counties, Madison, et cetera, they essentially start increasing numbers at a rate that was not necessarily like normal for this, this rural area. Like it's very much a clear distinction that they are pushing um, and elevating the amount of Black people participating in politics. They have a Black sheriff that comes in at one point. So yeah, they, they were effective. Um, but what you see though is how much their effectiveness is still combated with larger state politics. I think a lot of times, and I and I hope again to emphasize this, we usually say, well, people aren't voting or apathy, right? But I think what North Florida can show us is they were there. They were pulling the numbers. They were organizing with the people. They were doing, you know, the community engagement work, the freedom schools. They had freedom songs and choirs. Um, they were very much ingrained and devoted to uplifting these Black spaces. And you realize that they're not alone. There's an audience of people who there's even, I think one of the more interesting things is there is a group of, of white politicians and, and businessmen who decide they're going to do their own voting drive because they're just like, well, we're going to try to outnumber them. So what does it mean now when we're looking at population where people are doing the work, they are getting the numbers, but they maybe they're outnumbered. Maybe for some reason, you know, we try appointments. We've seen in Gatson more recently when people get appointed into positions. Um, so I think a lot of things are going on here. So I, I would push people to reconsider um, what exactly is success? Is it, you know, some flipping of a state? Is it, or is it the fact that quite frankly, now people are being able to cast a ballot and make serious critiques of the politics around them? Allison Mitchell will give a presentation called From Protest to Politics, Reconsidering the Impact of the Congress of Racial Equality's Voter Registration Campaigns in Florida during the Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium at the University of Central Florida, October 21st and 22nd. The event is free, but registration is requested at myfloridahistory.org.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events like the Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium, watch our public television series Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, environmental history has become a staple in the course offerings of most universities, but students still anticipate a course in which humans are at the center of the analysis, right? Yes, they're sometimes surprised to encounter histories that are written from the perspective of other living beings, and in some cases, from non-living entities. As examples, a frequently assigned article focuses on the history of the beaver and its environmental impact and a well-known book puts coal and coal mining at the center of its research. The Florida Historical Quarterly recently published an article by John O'Miller in which the sable, or cabbage palm, played the central role. In this case, it generated decades of controversy and competing views on its place in the symbology of the state, particularly the official seal of the state of Florida. Miller went on to publish a book in 2021 titled The Palmetto Book, Histories and Mysteries of the Cabbage Palm. The book provides 25 stories in which the cabbage palm occupies center stage. The stories are entertaining and informative, providing a different perspective on our history over the course of centuries of human interaction with the plant. And the quarterly article is different from the stories that appear in the book, right? Of course. As Miller notes, every state has both an official seal and an official state tree, although the U.S. Constitution does not require either. Embossed state seals are attached to government documents, lending an official imprimatur beyond the appropriate signatures. Official state trees, like other such designations that can include flowers, songs, food, birds, animals, and so forth, often reflect the preferences or politics of the moment, and most states have several in each category. Initially, schoolchildren were involved in making the nominations, but today the additions are more likely based on cultural changes of the moment. Florida has had a succession of seals that reflected the political changes the state underwent over time, including the 1810 seal of the Republic of West Florida, the seals of territorial Florida in 1822, statehood in 1846, and the Confederacy in 1861. In 1868, during the Reconstruction period, the state legislature established the size and elements for all future renditions of the state seal. It would be a seal the size of the American silver dollar, having in the center thereof a view of the sun's rays over a high land in the distance, a cocoa tree, a steamboat on water, and an Indian female scattering flowers in the foreground, encircled by the words, Great Seal of the State of Florida, in God We Trust. 
If the legislation seemed to settle the issue of the appearance of the seal, no one had contemplated the next century plus of objections to the rendering of specific elements and the fierce debate over the issue of cocoa palm versus cabbage palm. Why did the rendering of the seal require such a long period to resolve? Of course, it was not a point of discussion continuously. Periodically, legislators returned to the seal to make changes. In the several renditions that followed, the high land, which included mountains, was changed to reflect a more realistic Florida landscape. The Indian feather headdress was removed, and the length of the skirt for the female figure was altered. And there were several renditions of the steamboat. Beginning in the 1830s, Florida garden clubs mounted a campaign to name the cabbage palm as the state tree, arguing that it was an indigenous plant and ubiquitous in the Florida landscape. It wasn't until 1953, however, that the state designated the cabbage palm as the state tree. Now the debate shifted to the state seal. If the cabbage palm was the state tree, it should be included in the seal and the cocoa palm removed. In 1970, the state legislature voted to change the tree on the seal to the sable or cabbage palm, but it would be another 15 years before the change was made in 1985. An interesting story. What else can you tell us about Florida's cabbage palm? Having introduced quarterly readers to the role of the cabbage palm in state history, Miller's subsequent book provides a wealth of information about the centrality of the cabbage palm to Florida's past and present, starting with a fossilized sable palm leaf in the Florida Museum of Natural History that is between 16 and 18 million years old. Though difficult to harvest, it is ruinous on saw blades, cabbage palm houses exist, and Miller cites two in Volusia County. In Florida's industrial history, cabbage palms provided bristles for brushes until replaced with nylon bristles. Drawings of cabbage palms appear in the notebooks of Audubon and John Muir, Winslow Homer's paintings, The White Rowboat and The Turkey Buzzard, and works by Herman Herzog, John Singer Sanger, and N.C. Wythe include depictions of cabbage palms. Finally, Florida tourism used the cabbage palm in marketing campaigns, including the iconic image of the lucky palm at Silver Springs. Although Stetson Kennedy introduced his book, Palmetto Country, with the following quote, it seems a fitting ending for this discussion on the sable palm. An old-timer once described it in these glowing terms. I tell you there's no tree like the cabbage palm. It never dies of old age, and you can't see the end of it, lessen you cut it down. The sun can't wither it, fire can't burn it, and moss can't cling to it. Have you seen one bend before the wind, laying all its fans out straight, and just give so's the wind can't find nothing to take hold of? I pass a beautiful wild sable palm on my way to the university every day, I've always admired it, but now I will give it more respect. Great. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Palm trees to feel no 
This is Florida Frontiers. Migrant farm workers have been an essential part of Florida's economy since the late 1800s. Holly Baker has this look at migrant farm workers in Apopka. Dale Slongwhite is the author of the book Fed Up, The High Costs of Cheap Food. In Fed Up, she documents the oral histories of African-American farm workers whose lives were affected by pesticide exposure while working on farms near Lake Apopka. For decades, the farms around Lake Apopka were sprayed with chemicals such as DDT and toxaphene. I asked how she first learned about the Apopka farm workers and their experiences. My daughter was a student at uh, Barry University School of Law, and she was going to be part of the Environmental Justice Conference. And she asked me if I would like to come. Well, I had literally never heard the term environmental justice, had no clue. I thought it had something to do with recycling. And so when I got there, it was way over my head. All these lawyers were speaking and I was half getting it. And then a woman got up, an African-American woman, and she began talking in language I could understand. And it was Linda Lee, who was a former farm worker. And I was absolutely shocked. I had only moved to the area a few years before from Massachusetts, and I had never really thought how our food was harvested or planted. I thought machines probably did it. And when I heard her experience of working in the fields and the types of things that happened, I I was shocked. And I just thought something has to be done about this. But I'm not a lawyer. I can't do anything. I'm not an environmentalist. I'm not a doctor. What am I? And so I looked into my heart and soul and knew what I was. I was a storyteller. And so that's what I went to do. I mean, the question became, what do you do when you find out that somebody else has a problem, even though you never heard of it, what do you do about that? After meeting Apopka farm worker Linda Lee at the Environmental Justice Conference, Dale Slongwhite decided to write a book to shine a light on Linda's story, as well as the stories from other farm workers in the community. As she explains, it all starts with Lake Apopka, one of the largest lakes in Florida. In the early 20th century, Lake Apopka was a clear water lake known as a premier fishing site. Soon, it would also be known for its rich soil. During World War II, the government needed to find some fertile land in the country for the food effort during World War II. And they found that Lake Apopka had very fertile land called muck that was on the bottom of the lake. And so the state of Florida gave away 20,000 acres on the north shore of the lake. They grew everything over there, carrots, they had a carrot house, celery, peppers, cucumbers, corn, tomatoes, just everything you could imagine. So then they had a problem with earworms. So what were they going to do about these earworms that were eating up the crop? And DDT had just been discovered, I guess, and they realized that this could help. So they dropped the DDT on the land. And many times they did not ask the farm workers to leave. So these people were getting DDT onto them. And it was more than DDT too. 
there were no bathrooms in the fields. A woman had to go behind bushes in order to go. They would wear long dresses in the field because that would give them some kind of privacy. A woman told me of their friends who would be in labor and they worked right up until the day they were going to give birth. And if they started in labor in the field, they would be told, go over there and lie in the truck until the day is over and we'll bring you home. So there were many women who lost babies because of that. The pesticide DDT was banned in the 1970s. By then, Lake Apopka was one of the most polluted and toxic lakes in the United States. In 1985, the Lake Apopka Restoration Act was passed and farms around it were closed. Many of the farm workers who were exposed to harmful pesticides later developed health issues such as cancer, lupus, asthma, diabetes, and kidney failure. Women suffered miscarriages and had children with genetic defects. In recent years, some of the farm workers, including Linda Lee, came together to create a memorial quilt project to remember those who died from working in the Lake Apopka muck. Dale Slongwhite. As the years went by and many people were dying, Linda Lee, the same person that I had seen at the Environmental Justice Conference, she decided that they wanted to do something to memorialize all those people who had passed away. It took a very long time, and she wound up with two quilts. Some people made their own squares. One of the quilt squares is a mother with an apron, and inside that apron there's a stick of gum, literal gum, in there, because that's what she was remembered for. The children would always go to her and get a stick of gum. Somebody else liked to fish, so his daughter, I believe it was, did a quilt square. So there's two quilts. They're beautiful, and they're just, I guess you would call them folk art. We've brought them to schools, many schools. I, I went out with Linda Lee, Geraldine Matthew, Betty DeBose. So the four of us would go out and present in Seminole State College, some high schools, some churches that would invite us to come, and we would have the quilt, have one of them, and set it up. The Museum of the Apopkins in Apopka, Florida, recently held an exhibit called Honoring Farm Workers that featured the Farmworker Association of Florida's Lake Apopka Farmworker Memorial Quilts. The Farmworker Association of Florida in Apopka was established in 1986 by a group of farm workers to organize more effectively in their fight for better housing, wages, and working conditions. To learn more, go to floridafarmworkers.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, find us on Facebook and online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.